Hello, I am Dr. Nadia Kanelopoulou. I am based at the Helix Centre for Health, Law and Emerging Technologies at the Department of Public Health in the University of Oxford. I am a, a lawyer, uh, an academic lawyer, and I am working on a postdoctoral project on ensuring consent and revocation in the management of personal data. I am interested in notions of genetic identity and control and equity in research and I will be talking to you today about the regulation of human genomic biobanking and in particular it, on the contested concept of the gift in research. It is part of a doctoral work or it rather stems from my doctoral work which was on group rights in biomedical law and it was presented at the University of Edinburgh with Graham Laurie and Ken Mason and it's situated within the field of medical jurisprudence which examines how medical law develops in conjunction with ethics and remains informed by ethics. So looking at the regulation of uh, human genomic biobanking and from a broader perspective that is looking at the legal but also ethical and social aspects of gifting in research is what I will be talking about because in this field it turns out that placing the law in a broader context, in an interdisciplinary context, becomes quite important for regulating research relationships, especially over a long period of time. So current approaches in biobanking, especially in the UK, this is where I'm really focused on, and I'm motivated to do so in order to clarify some of the fundamental principles and assumptions in regulating biobanking research relationships. And in particular, looking at the inconsistencies of the direct endorsement of the unconditional gift relationship idiom in research. When I'm talking about human genomic biobanking, and we're talking about large repositories of human biological tissue and also information related to processing that tissue. That can also include health information or medical history, other types of personal information in the quest to map genetic and environmental interactions of disease, especially in common complex diseases. So these large-scale biorepositories become essential in pursuing further research and they require both long-lasting cooperation and trust on the part of participants towards researchers and towards research and research establishment as a whole. Different uh, ways exist to understand how re regulating those relationships, regulating biobanking. And in particular in the UK, there's a use of, of, of language that centers of notions of altruism. So there's an extensive use of, of altruism in, in regulatory language in the UK. And I would define altruism as an action in the interests of another or the disposition to act in the interests of another. And since the since the mid-90s in the UK, there have been a number of reports seeking to address legal and ethical issues in the use of human biological samples for research purposes. Uh, starting with the Nafil Council Bioethics Report in 1995, proposing that the act of providing tissue clearly indicates what is involved is a gift, which is a gift free of all claims. And that gift, according to the guidance, would be considered as a voluntary transfer from the true owner in possession, that is the individual providing the, the sample, with no expectation of its return. 
The same type of consideration is is given later on in 2001 by the Medical Research Council Working Group on Human Tissue and Biological Samples, which reiterated the position recommending that tissue samples donated for research be treated as gifts or donations. And the working group goes a little bit further to, to discuss a moral and ethical prerogative to do so because the, the gift relationship promotes and underlines the altruistic motivation for participation in research. For participation in research. So this term, the gift relationship, reappears in UK regulatory guidance since the 60s and it was first introduced then in the context of sociological work that was looking at the patterns of exchange in primitive societies and it had quite a bit of an influence for policy making in, in blood donation informed by work of scholars such as Titmus back in 1970. So this work influenced the formulation of policies for blood donation and also paved the way for developing models for organ donation in the UK. Yet again, it's important to, to note that this altruistic model is not a universal model and different approaches exist in uh, regulating altruistic and paid blood donation and this exists in parallel uh, in countries such as in the US. I do not want to linger on discussing the details of the different types of approaches on incorporating the gift relationship back in the 60s, but there's extensive work now looking at how the circumstances between then and now are quite different, and that seeking to import this idea of free genetic gifts on the basis of prior thinking is not necessarily a clever or sustainable idea. Not only that, it's also problematic and probably dangerous. So my work is looking at different ways that analyze the notion of gift as gift not only as an unconditional gratitude transfer, but also something that introduces a mutual obligation between all the parties involved in a relationship. And these are ideas of multiple meanings of gifts and problematizing the notion of gift is available in uh, sociological work as well, looking at uh, this element of mutual obligation that's required and that it's missing from current guidance. It's worth looking at different ways that the language of the gift is used in current guidance, not only definitionally but also the, the assumptions that accompany it. And we would say that at least two problems that can be seen, can be acknowledged when looking at the way the language of the gift is used at the moment. This related to two assumptions, two unfortunate assumptions, one being what we could call the surrender provision and another one being the unquestioned use of altruism in research in conjunction with the ideas of genetic solidarity and how these are defined in current guidance. So the surrender provision could be defined as such, I mean, going back to the NAFIL Council of Bioethics report describing that the the legal notion of genetic gift would be considered as a free voluntary transfer with no expectation of its return. That would involve the surrender of all interests in the removed tissue on the part of the person from whom it was removed. And that would also mean that the person from whom the tissue is removed does not have the slightest interest in making a claim to the donated sample once it is removed. And this position is reinforced by the Medical Research Council Working Group that I mentioned earlier back in 2001, which essentially stipulated that any proprietary rights the donor might have in the tissue should be transferred with the control over the use of the tissue to the recipient of the gift. So this position overall ties well with a prerogative introduced by the European Convention on Human Rights and Biomedicine in 97, 
claiming that the human body and its parts shall not as such give rise to financial gain. So there's a strong kind of moral and also legal at an international level prohibition against financial gain for the person from whom the tissue is removed. Interestingly though, the, the MRC guidance expands this idea of financial gain to any other material gain, although, even though there is no clear indication as to why this expansion takes place. There's an interesting um, parenthesis here. It's more than a parenthesis, but it's, it, it introduces a hurdle that's worth a different presentation also ever, in that the surrender provision essentially could be understood as implying that property rights in the body exist, especially in the context of research, even though jurisprudentially there's an extensive antipathy to property in the body. This position is quite ambiguous and it's also quite incongruous and is seriously problematic. And I will not linger on this further, but it's, it is a serious consideration to, to make in terms of the sustainability of an approach that's based on gift from the allegedly true owner to, to somebody else. How can one give a gift if they do not have a property on it? But to, to return back to the, the discussion about altruism and the, its relationship with the surrender provision, this provision essentially considers the value of tissues to be limited and uh, potential participants as having no interest in it. So could as well define this as the assumption of disinterestedness. This approach is also combined with the reinvention of another concept called the gen genetic solidarity that was embraced by the Department of Health in the sense that we all share the same basic human genome and this sharing of our genetic constitution not only gives rise to opportunities to help others but also highlights our common interest in the fruits of medically based genetic research. So that's an interesting language as well because this appeal to a notion of sharedness of our genetic constitution seems to emphasize a special moral relationship and possibly a related obligation to participation. So the Human Genetics Commission promotes these two key elements in support of such obligation, these opportunities to help others and a common interest in the fruits of research. Yet, it is important to question this position because questions are unanswered as to whether that special moral relationship linking us to one another really exists. And if it does, whether it ought to be constructed as a one-way giving to public and private entities for some long-term common good, such as in the case of large-scale genomic biobanking, where the benefits are anticipated in the future, but they're quite intangible at the present state. Furthermore, is there a common interest in the fruits of research that's shared by all? And if so, on what grounds and in what terms can this interest be properly defined balanced and understood in the UK context. These are all questions that require further development. So essentially this guidance reiterates this interaction between the potential donors and the researchers as essentially a free gift that uh, primarily raises obligations on the part of the donors. And we could easily kind of, we could easily frame this relationship as an enclosed relationship that is a positive moral responsibility for donors towards the wider public. So why must one give tissue sample to research only as a free gift? Uh, one can argue that there is a comfortable social appeal in the use of charitable feel-good discourses and laudable acts. Yet again, such 
such a language allows an unhindered and wide, at least a wide scope of possible future use without further interference. So by looking at the standard provision and also the introduction of this idea of genetic solidarity, the discussion about altruism changes in the following ways, in the sense that there's a rhetoric of altruism in current language, in regulatory guidance in the UK, and that is problematic in at least another four counts. One is the hypothesis that circumstances apply in blood donation that are different to organ transplantation and also further different to genetic research, uh, and that the nature of, of the gifts in these contexts are different. Another one is that there is a lack of evidence that the research participants act solely for charitable reasons. A third one is that there is a failure to acknowledge other interests that become engaged uh, apart from charitable ones. And also there's a fourth one in that this language of altruism becomes, well, risks becoming an exploitative device at the expense of participants' interests. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sociological and legal analysis as well as to how these criticisms are developed. Overall, they could be understood in the sense of the spheres of, people, of participants being suckered in uh, participating for nothing yet contributing to private profits. There's an American scholar who put it in, in the following words, that it's not so much an ethical obligation to share some of the profits as it is a desire to avoid having people feel that they're suckers. You know, I gave away something for free and you got awfully rich from it. You took me for a ride, you mistreated me as a sucker. Which, whether or not it is, is a strong ethical argument, doesn't have good political consequences for support of research. So this ethically could be defined as the injustice in using one's gift to make another's profit. Um, and there are scholars who write about this as one-way altruism being called exploitation. Other reasons are that there's, there's a multiplicity of interests that take precedence when people participate. It could be because they, they're interested in influencing the use of samples, it could be because they're interested in obtaining information about illness in their family or their descent, or interest in that research is not contrary to their belief system. There's also an overall an underlying idea, a principle of fairness in the sense that um, participating in research could um, yield some benefits and that could be shared with the participants even at the collective level and there are quite a few proposals about this. Another way of looking at why the rhetoric of altruism is not best developed in the UK at the moment is that the gift is not an absolute gift. There has been an introduction of clauses about withdrawal, but uh, withdrawal of some of the participants' um, involvement in, in a biobank. And there is an increasing debate as to whether the withdrawal feature evinces a moral sensibility concerning the relation of participants to their extracted tissues as well to the to their overall engagement in the biobank. So the fact that the gift is revocable can be withdrawn means that it cannot be treated as an unconditional transfer. So firm protection of withdrawal rights indicates a good faith attempt to endow participants with limited but real rights of control over their tissues. And uh, there exist very recent attempts to, to examine how withdrawal rights could work in practice. One such attempt is a current project happening at Helix at the University of Oxford. Uh, Helix is the at the centre where I'm currently affiliated in, and we're working on a project called Encore, ensuring consent and revocation in the management of personal data. This includes a case study, a pilot with the Oxford Radcliffe Power Bank, 
to look at uh, different requirements by users of the bank in terms of controlling their data during the research process. So overall, in terms of altruistic models and how they, they operate, there seems to be a lack of flexibility on the part of the current UK guidance on incorporating other kinds of interest by presuming that the sole possible mode for participation would be an, a free altruistic one. In all this discussion, a critical question arises for the protection of participants' interests in this context, and this is whether they can have a degree of better control of the use that is made of samples, as well as other rights of, rightful claims that they could have, such as for the time or the effort or the resources that participants contribute to research. And in recent years, there's been a number of models that have been developing to resolve this tension between disempowering participants by enclosing them in a particular free gift discourse and collaborative approaches. And these models range from socio-ethical to legal ones. Some are do-it-yourself contractual models, especially in the US, with activities by patient groups who make private agreements with researchers. There's also models of benefit sharing based on humanitarian purposes. Examples are in um, Canada and in Scotland. Yet all these projects are in under development and some of them may be providing too much of an excessive protection or an uncertain context protection in terms of contacts that potentially may not be enforceable if they were challenged in court, or normative humanitarian models that are not yet at least clearly defined in terms of their underlying moral criteria. So in this landscape of models for collaborative engagements emerging, models for collaboration between participants and researchers in, in ways that could allow participants to have a better say in the use of research throughout the the duration of the research. There's a need to develop a clear normative framework that would allow the incorporation of participants' interests in, in clearer ways, both at a basic normative level, but also in terms of legal mechanisms that could apply, that would be certain over time. And in this landscape, what is overdue is an analysis of what gifts can be in the sense that gifts could have multiple meanings. And understanding gift relationships in broader ways is familiar in uh, discourses coming from sociology and anthropology, less so in law, where gifts are usually defined as donations, which means essentially which, as free gifts. But in sociology and anthropology, there exists a lot of work that describes the relationship between gifts and commodities as a continuum of exchanges that depend on processes which determine not only the economic value of things, but also the context in which other symbolic and social meanings are developed. So in the context of understanding gifts are as social and as ongoing as, in essence, exchanges and returns of favours, there would be space in law to develop ways to understand gifts and research as polysemic, as gifts with multiple meanings, gifts that introduce these ideas of giving, returning, reciprocating as part of an ongoing engagement. This paradigm of ongoing engagement is quite interesting in the case of biobanking because biobanking requires long-term cooperation from participants and researchers and over a rather long period of time. And 
huge resources are being invested. Long-term trust is required for such collaborations and there's modelling from the social sciences that describes that collaborations that require ongoing cooperation over time could be well secured by using the rules of reciprocity. So the use of rules of reciprocity is an area that I have been looking at in my doctoral thesis and reciprocity could be understood in a very straightforward way as imposing an obligation to return a favour or resource. So under reciprocity rules, people should help those who have helped them and people should not injure those who have helped them. And overall, reciprocity requires that parties are jointly bound as regards the risks and the benefits from their interaction, but also that there's a balanced return between them that shelters ongoing cooperation. So rules of reciprocity allow to focus on the collaborative qualities that the relationship could involve and could help shelter Cooperation. Cooperation could be achieved in two fundamental ways, by securing trust and by ensuring a level of control. And by using rules of reciprocity that understand cooperation in the sense of establishing transparency, trust and introducing rights that, for participants that would give them better control, uh, such rules could go a long way in providing a new framework that would allow an ongoing communication representation of interests on the, part, on the part of participants as contributors to the research enterprise. All the discussion is framed at, at a quite kind of a normative philosophical level, at a conceptual level about what types of norms could we be looking for in terms to change the way the relationship between research and participants are, is framed in the law, in policy guidance and from a broader perspective within the social sciences field by introducing ethics, ethical considerations of collaborative working. The ways to achieve reciprocity uh, could be other very practical legal mechanisms but I would argue also require an understanding of ethical values and in seeking to combine law and ethics in how reciprocity rules could be introduced in the research relationship, I have proposed a new research ethics principle of empowerment in the case of group rights when I was looking at the rights of groups of individuals in large-scale research. I would call it a group empowerment, as a principle that prescribes that participants are protected in mobilizing themselves efficiently and that, that the contribution to the research enterprise is acknowledged and respected. This principle would allow inscribing research relationship in law as continuous and reciprocal, and under this frame, the research gifts should not be regarded as free gifts, but instead as conditional gifts from participants to researchers. and. Um, other way around, thereby affording participants some power in their ongoing involvement with research. So in fact, the recognition of relationships between research and participants and reciprocal would, and the moral acknowledgement of the role of the participants in research would help reshape the way we regulate research relationships overall. And in this reframing, we would need to use a language of gifts that would include both unconditional gifts, free gifts that can be described as gratuitous transfers with no expectation of return, and also conditional gifts which involve the exchange of reciprocal returns as part of an ongoing collaborative interaction 
and dynamic engagement between researchers and participants over time. Further work is needed to describe how these conditional gifts could be regulated and on, on what basis criteria could be developed that introduce appropriate conditions in particular contexts. But overall, there's a set of criteria that could be developed which at a broad and normative level should take account of the nature of the collaboration between participants and researchers in, in each case. Also the nature of the gift that could include the significance of a transfer to the community of particular participants. I'm thinking here of indigenous contexts where particular value often is attributed to even the, the part of the body that's transferred. And also this is not only a concept that is alien to UK context or cases of animism as, as has been described in Margaret Locke's work. Further criteria could be uh, taking account of participants' intentions for the use of the gift in particular ways and also their expectations about possible benefits that could be associated with the research project considered in a broader context of the reasons why a particular type of project is proposed. So overall this criteria would be developed and maintained as part of an ongoing dialogue with, between researchers and participants at, at the starting area at the design stage of the research and it would provide a, a model that is flexible, a conditional gift model that would be flexible and well suited to protect participants' interest in how samples are used or what kinds of research is pursued with them over time. Uh, so conceptually, overall, this idea of a conditional gift model as a reciprocal model on the basis of empowerment is a model for returning favours and it's a model for fair play that can nourish trust and provide better control. And it is through trust and control, through provision of trust and provision of control that better cooperation can be ensured for long-term participation in such projects. In conclusion, this type of framing that I am proposing is a conceptual model for conditional gifts in research on the basis of a research ethics principle of empowerment. And this principle of empowerment of participants in research requires fair play, a game that is required, that is ruled by rules of reciprocity. And in such a way, the interaction between participants and researchers would not be a mere exchange or would not even be a, a mere free gift, but it would be a collaborative engagement sustained by social relations, personal, cultural and other material values. So overall, my model is calling for developing clearer normative principles and new criteria to evaluate the role of biobanking participants as part group participants in research. And it proposes that the perpetuation of altruism as the only paradigm in the regulation of biobanking does not anticipate fundamental interests of participants in research. And unless this framing changes, we would be risking public trust in those in large-scale projects and resources and we would be increasing the chances of such projects failing over time. Thank you.